This episode is brought to you by Bubs Naturals, and one of the most profound new supplements I've added to my own diet is collagen. And Bubs provides the only collagen that is not only NSF certified, but also Whole30 certified. Now, when we think of collagen, you might think of beauty products, but when ingested, collagen not only positively affects skin, nails, and hair, but also joint and gut health, something that I witnessed personally within myself. Now, I'm also a huge fan of altruistic business, and Bubs was founded out of tragedy. Glenn Bub Doherty was one of the two Navy SEALs killed in Benghazi. And his friends, Sean and TJ, founded this company to not only create great nutritional products, but also take 10% of the proceeds and donate them to charity. So they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, 20% off your first purchase if you use the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear more about the inception of Bubs and Glenn's powerful story, listen to episode 558 of Behind the Shield podcast with Sean Lake. This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, Behind the Shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. 
their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 511, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Chelsea Burkhart. Now, Chelsea is a performance dietitian working with some of the most elite warfighters on the planet. So we discuss a host of topics from her journey into nutrition, sports drinks, supplementation, exogenous testosterone, sleep, the Human Performance Project, and so much more. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Chelsea Burkhart. Enjoy. Well, Chelsea, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. So we are both on the Human Performance Project team, so I'm very excited to explore that. So just as a kind of icebreaker, how did you find yourself coming on the team? Yeah, so um, the physical therapist on the team, MJ, um, was we worked together and she came into my office last fall, I guess, and said, Hey, I've got an idea. I just, you know, had something floated my way, wanted to see if maybe you would be interested. Um, I'm going to be supporting a guy who's going to do seven marathons on seven continents in seven days. And it turns out he doesn't have a dietitian for the project. And I wondered if you'd be interested. And I mean, just even taking in the concept of seven marathons on seven continents in seven days, I just was like, um, it, well, yes, of course, but I mean, this isn't really going to happen, right? Like, sure, I'll say yes, throw my name in. <laughs> I kind of expected it to not go anywhere. Had didn't I didn't know anything about the project or those who are participating. Um, I didn't know them as individuals and just kind of said, yeah, sure, connect me with this guy. We'll see where it goes. So um, 
she did. She connected me with, with Ryan Birdman Parrot and hopped on the phone and ended up talking for like two hours um, about the project and the practical application of nutrition. And uh, yeah, I mean, the rest is just really kind of history. I'm fully along for the ride at this point. Well, MJ is actually coming on later this month, so we'll have her perspective as well. But uh, awesome. he has assembled quite the team, um, myself excluded. <laughs> I'm on the team. <laughs> it's just not quite. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely amazing. So it'll be really interesting to get your perspective of that as we'll kind of you know dump, jump back into that at the end. Um, so very first question then, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Um, I am in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Beautiful. Well, a lot of people will probably recognize that as a certain special operations community, but we'll leave it there as to, you know, which one you work with. Um, so I would love to start at the very beginning of your chronological timeline. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents yeah. did and how many siblings. Uh, I grew up in Moscow, Idaho, in the good old Pacific Northwest. Um, I... My mother is a teacher. She's a reading specialist. Um, my stepfather is an engineer. My dad is, my dad is retired. Well, they're all retired at this point. My dad sold chemicals to farmers for a long time in that beautiful farming country up there. And um, my, my stepmom is in some kind of different finance work type stuff. So um, I have had a robust family with multiple parents my whole life. My life has always looked like that. And I have um, uh, one real sister who's two years older than me. And then I have five step siblings who are significantly older than me. My mom and stepdad are a number of years apart. So um, yeah, we have a big family that does a lot together. My, both of my parents come from large families and uh yeah, grew up in Idaho for the most part. I spent a year in England as a kid, um, my fifth grade year, and then we were back here in the States. I went to college in northern Idaho, finished in Colorado, did another degree in Wyoming, and finished my master's at the University of Florida. So I've kind of bounced all over the place. Well, firstly, what took you to the UK and did that change your perspective of the world taking yourself from the US and then coming back again? Yeah. Um, so my stepdad was on sabbatical through the University of Idaho and was did his sabbatical at the University of Newcastle. And so we live just south of the border uh, in northern England, just south of the Scottish border. And it was awesome. I mean, we my parents are travelers anyway, so we traveled all over the UK while we were there. And again, I was only 10, but I, I mean, we went back when I was 16 and, you know, it was really, it was awesome. It was cool as a, as a 10 year old to gain a new perspective on, on how the world operates and that we're all the, obviously I was, you know, immersed in another English speaking Caucasian dominant culture, but at the same time, realizing that halfway across the world, people were living that we all live the same. We all have, you know, we're all just human doing the same kinds of things with all the same kinds of issues. And um, I think I really realized that early on uh, and had the opportunity to, like I said, travel all over the UK and, and see so much cool history and, and just how many different cultures can even exist in such a short span. I mean, 
England is about the size of Idaho, the state that I grew up in. And, you know, the tiny one state in the continental United States. And then here we were with multiple countries uh, in about the same landmass. And so it was really cool to see so many different, um, I don't know, just so many different countries and ways of living come together. But at the same time, realizing, oh, like we're halfway across the world, but we're all, these are all just people doing the same things. I had a conversation with a friend of mine who's a police officer and she's also gay. And we were talking about this being Pride Month. And, yeah. uh, you know, she wasn't her favorite kind of concept. And I said to her, you know what we need? We just need don't be a dick year. That would cover yeah. all the bases then. Just cover all the bases. Because <laughs> basically that's what it comes from is prejudice, yeah. a-holes, the minority, you know, uh, isolating these people. But I agree with you. Most people are normal human beings that want to raise yeah. their kids and, you know, want to see them grow up and, and have maybe kids of their own and enjoy this amazing planet. And most of yep. us are more than happy of people's, you know, skin color, religion, who they sure. sleep with. Um, but it seems like we, when we pigeonhole people like this, we keep that prejudice alive. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I, I think, um, and somebody just said this to me the other day, like, it's almost like it makes, puts a magnifying glass on things even more. And it just, it doesn't remind us of how much we all have in common. And we're all just living the same lives, trying to do the same things. You know, my kids make me laugh. I have two boys five and six years old. And they'll ask me, mom, why is that person going that place? I'm like, you know, I don't know, buddy, you'd have to ask them. I don't, I don't know that person. And they just have no concept of how many people there are in the world, how big the world is, and that we're all just living similar lives, doing the same kinds of things. Um, you know, and you realize it takes a long time to gain that perspective when a six-year-old has no idea what it even means to go to Idaho. We show him the map, but he really doesn't have a concept of how far away grandparents are versus how big the world even is. <laughs> well, speaking of grandparents, with your mom being a reading specialist, what's been her perspective of when, you know, we were young, I'm assuming you're younger than me, but, you know, our rough generation where we grew yeah. up with books to, mm -hmm. you know, these, these young kids now that are brought up with screens, that's all they've ever known. Yeah, I mean, she is such a huge advocate of reading because it plays such a big role in everything that we do. I mean, it's completely incapacitating if you're unable to read. So, you know, I, I think, I don't know that I've talked to her specifically about that as a concern. I just, she's so adamant about, you know, she buys us books all the time. She's always encouraging uh, the boys to be reading and she'll send them something and we hop on a zoom call and she wants to listen to them read and, you know, just cheering them on. Um, so, you know, I know she's a, certainly aware of the psychological detriment that there are uh, with screens and, you know, trying and needing to limit that amount of time. I mean, you can just, I can, my kids after even an hour of TV, they start arguing, they turn nasty about things and you're like, yeah, this is just not what people are meant to do for a long period of time and you can it's so real well i've talked about this on the podcast before um i struggled to read a few years ago for quite a while like most of my career and a lot of stuff i read was textbooks I and mean, as i'm sure with the the men that you work with there's so much technical knowledge that we need sometimes there's yep. not space for other things um and it took you know a diligent meditation practice to start kind of opening up my mind to be able to read but that being said i mean i know kindles are a big thing now you can see behind me there's yeah. a, a library of books yeah. I, there's nothing better than actually you know holding a paper holding book and book. folding the corner of the page when you're down and sitting there yeah. with a cup of coffee on the porch so that's yeah, just, you can see mine right here too yes there we go <laughs> yeah. 
there we go. Yeah. So, so they're missing all that. And the thing is, it's, yep. I understand why, because when you have that pull from social media and screens, it's, it's a far cry from the kind of quiet mind that you need to truly be present with a book. Yeah. Yeah. And like you're saying, folding down the corner of the book and how much you can take from when you're on a screen, you tend, I tend at least to consume something much faster and not pause and reread, you know, you don't push pause and rewind and re-listen. Like I'm sure, I'm sure every now and then people do that, but for the most part, you know, you really, you put down a book and you soak it in, you know, when it's time to just be like, okay, either my eyes are tired or I need to take in what I just read. So I'm going to close this and I'm going to come back to it. And I think we internalize things so much better. I mean, there's certainly research to show like it's important to take notes. It's important to write things down, like how we interpret things. If you're a visual learner, versus an audio learner, um, you know, how much we really take things in and grow from the things that we read. Um, and I think that that part's really important. Absolutely. Now, pulling from the other side of the family as well, your father's selling chemicals to fathers, to fathers, excuse me, to, to farmers, maybe yeah. fathers too. Um, and you being in the nutrition world, obviously, we're starting to learn now, sadly, a lot of the kind yeah. of side effects of some of these chemicals. Mm -hmm. What is that conversation like? And does he look back now and has he got a different philosophy of what, what he used to do? Yes and no. I mean, I think that part is... Um that part is hard because it's, it's was his livelihood, you know, and that's still so much of, of livelihood of my family. I mean, my family, I have a ton of families who are farmers using chemicals and my dad selling chemicals to farmers, you know, they do a lot of, a lot of good things for us because those chemicals allow the food supply to be what corporate America wants it to be today. Um, you know, it allows us to feed the masses year round. Um, but there's just so many downfalls that we know of, you know, glyphosate and other chemicals are, they're, they're environmental toxins. <laughs> we know that they significantly impact us at the mitochondrial level and, you know, the powerhouse of the cell. And, um, you know, so I don't know, it's almost it's a delicate conversation and maybe one that's not even really worth having to an extent of um, just how much goes into it. Cause it's like, well, okay. So then what is, what is the answer? Where do we go from here? Um, what are the, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's a hard one. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, to me again, total layman's eyes yet again, we found ourselves now with a lot of mega farms, you know, feeding most of the people, which I think this is the problem I've witnessed just in, you know, the kind of um, capitalistic extreme that we've gone is that some people want all the money. You know, look at yep. Amazon, perfect example. 100%. You know? um, and so rather than having lots of local farms that probably could sustain with a much more holistic way of farming, yep. you've relied now on these chemicals to create these fertilizers to create these foods. So to me, as with, you know, the movement and nutrition and everything else, even though we've advanced so much in so many areas, doing many things that our great grandparents did, I think is actually the answer to a lot of the woes that we find at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I completely agree. If if people didn't, if the world or the grocery stores weren't full of so much processed crap, we wouldn't need so many heavily farmed 
ingredients, you know, that it would just completely change the dynamic of, of the foods that were even, uh, that were even needed. And it could be done much more regionally. I mean, you can't grow every, you're not going to grow wheat all over. That's really what they grow in the Pacific Northwest where I grew up. They grow a lot of wheat and they grow wheat for like all of America and you can't grow every crop in every place. But, um, we also don't need so much like heavily processed starch, wheat, et cetera, that people even consume. So, you know, it's such a vicious cycle between big food, big agriculture and how it all feeds into the standard American diet and what people consume and what the grocery cart looks like these days. And it's just such a broader conversation that's all interrelated. And unfortunately, government is a piece of that too. You know, it's all, it's, it's big and it's, it's overwhelming to even think about when you think about the implication of um, the fact that we don't educate people. We don't educate even children well in America on how the body works and how food fuels us. I mean, I worked in college athletics for 10 years and so rarely would my athletes know much about nutrition, but anytime we had an international athlete, they knew way more about nutrition and how food impacted their bodies. What was a carbohydrate? What was a protein? What was a fat? What did that food, that, um, their plate structure need to look like? How many fruit, you know, what, what were fruits and vegetables as far as, you know, I would often have an athlete who, if I laid out like asparagus, eggplant and sweet potato, and they were not cut and they were just looking at them. And I said, name those three foods for me. What are those? There's plenty of athletes who are like, I don't know. I've never cooked that. I've never cut it. I don't even know if I've ever eaten it. And I don't know what it is. <laughs> they, you know, it's in their grocery store. They know exactly what it is. They should know exactly what it is. And, you know, they just don't. And part of that is a big downfall of the education, uh, within America that of how our kids are not taught about their foods. And then certainly it has, it has spread to all, all, um, first world countries across the world. I had uh, Dan John on, strength and conditioning guru, and he was telling mm -hmm. a story of, I think it was one of his other you know, coaching friends that told him this, but they were walking through a parking lot. I forget. I think it was actually an NFL team, I believe. It was a professional team. And they looked in the car and he said, do you, you, know, do you see that? And, and I think his friend was like, you know, I'm, what are we looking at? And he said, McDonald's. And in so many of these athletes' cars, from what I understand from the story, there was, you know, bags and bags of discarded, you know, McDonald's. And the point was, he's like, they can finally afford it now. So they're basically defaulting what they consider, you know, luxury food or good food. And as you said, as an athlete, you couldn't get further from the fuel you need than anything that you can buy at McDonald's. But, you know, to them, without the education, rather than going and, and you know, finding some really, really good, still convenient food, that was their default because of that lack of education in their childhood. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's, uh, it's, it's just so true. And, you know, oftentimes there's just such a limited palate because of foods that people have been exposed to. It really depends on what did you grow up with? And do you know how your body feels when you're eating those foods versus how your body feels when you're eating more minimal ingredient foods? And so often the way somebody's body feels is not something they've ever really even tuned into. And 
you know, we always say in human performance, like if something feel, you could feel like trash, but if it's your normal, you have no idea that you feel like trash until you actually start to feel better. And then when you start to eat maybe some more minimal ingredient foods consistently and on a regular basis, and you see how your body feels, maybe you don't notice the difference then, but what you do notice is when you go trash your gut with McDonald's, you realize like, oh man, I don't feel anywhere near as good as I do when I eat other quality foods. And oftentimes we have to have that kind of withdraw and reintroduction of something uh, in order to notice how different the physiology uh, and energy levels and recovery and stamina are in the body with, with different nutrients coming in. So, you know, sometimes it's really just that introduction of education as well as higher quality foods before people really have a realization of how much better they can feel. So that actually reminds me when I was in Japan, I started kickboxing for a bit, just a class, not, not fighting. Um, and the Japanese at, at that point, a lot of the young Japanese smoked a lot. Now I hadn't smoked until I got there and there's so much smoking in Japan in the, the 2000s that yeah. passively I was becoming addicted and didn't realize even in the gym, there would be a cafe next to the gym, no partition and they'd be there smoking. So while you're working out, you, you know, you're kind of getting smoke blown in your face. Um, so anyway, I started smoking for a bit and I went from what should have been one of the fittest in the room to absolutely the least fit of anyone in the room. And, but I had that contrast from being a non-smoker up to that point to really having this oh shit moment to then stopping and, you know, taking probably a year to get back to where I was. I smoked for about eight months. Um, but in that room were probably people that smoked far more heavily than me. I just did it socially that were killing me in, in all the drills. So, I mean, that's a perfect analogy for what you're talking about. If you've never known, yeah. it's the same with sleep deprivation in my, my profession. If you yes. don't know what baseline is, it's mm -hmm. a very hard sell to get people to realize this is how much better you're going to feel when yeah. you sleep, when you eat well, when you move. Yeah, which is why I typically give people, I mean, we talk about sleep a ton within human performance and then within nutrition. When I ask somebody to change something, I typically will challenge them like, I bet you can't do this for a week. I bet you can't do this for two weeks. You know, try to appeal to that competitive side of like, well, all right, fine, I'll, I'll do it for two weeks. I'm like, okay, you know, let's see how it goes. You know, give yourself a, a break, maybe at least like five days this week. I can't imagine you can do seven. So let's at least do five, you know, let's see what that looks like. And, and exactly that, like, can you get people to buy in just a little bit? Cause it is a hard sell. And so if you can appeal to the competitive side a little bit and get them just to try something just for a short amount of time, uh, sometimes they feel a little bit better every day and they don't realize it. So then when they go back to what they were doing, kind of their crappy sleep habits or their crappy fueling habits, uh, and sometimes they don't go back because they realize very easily, like how much better they feel. But sometimes it takes kind of that back and forth. Like I did what you asked and then I regressed. And then I realized like, oh, I need to go back to that thing because I feel so much better. And I had no idea I even could feel better. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the other thing that really breaks my heart, and I was talking with Kelly Starrett with this the other day, um, we had everyone's attention for about two years. What an amazing opportunity to return school food back to being made like it was since the beginning of schools to remove the vending machines from schools, you know, so kids have access to water and, you know, a, a group of beverages that are actually going to be not, you know, push them into being pre-diabetic. Uh, pre 
And it was a polar opposite. You know, it, now we had a sicker, more mentally ill group of young children return to school to the exact same environment they left. So what has been your perspective of, of the last two years through a nutritionist's eyes? Yeah, I mean, it's hard. And I, I mean, I have, do you mean from a, like a, a school, a, like a young school perspective, elementary type? Yeah, I mean, any, any perspective, yeah. really. Yeah, I mean, the school systems are so challenging. You know, I mean, I, I have a kindergartner and watching what is considered. So because of COVID, the, govern, the government um, in schools, there's oftentimes free and reduced lunch for those who are in financial need of free and reduced lunch. So when kids go to school, they can get breakfast at school, they can get lunch at school. Well, with COVID, there was a policy or a memorandum signed that said all students K through 12, I believe K through 12, all across America will have access to breakfast and lunch without having to prove that there's a financial need. And so the USDA paid for that food. And so, you know, it's a really hard sell with your kindergartner going to school when they can eat. I would send him with a lunch, but because he could get free lunch, I would send him with food. He wouldn't even end up eating because he was eating what was offered at school. And, you know, it's highly palatable nutrient or calorie dense, nutrient poor foods. Um, And it's really important in my home that we create a healthy relationship with food. So I'm very intentional about not um, talk degrading foods that are quote unquote bad for us. I I think that's a totally inappropriate way to talk about foods. And um, it's just really hard to educate a six-year-old on what that means and how does he make different choices. And, you know, we, we, it doesn't mean that I don't highlight foods that are better for us or that I don't put things in like a sometimes type food category, but I'm delicate with how I do that education. But to watch that, you know, French fries are considered a vegetable (laughs) and they weren't. Michelle Obama was able to get that change that French fries were not a vegetable for a long time. And under the current or under the Trump administration, that that was reversed. And so, you know, watching in the school food programs, the things that changed, because again, big ag, big food, it makes sense for big ag that potatoes would be considered a vegetable because there's, you know, so much money in, um, lobbyists that that come from big agriculture that support the government and that support candidates um, in their you know presidency, et cetera. So it's hard to watch things like that happen. That is the USDA is not going to be offering that in the fall of 2022. So that's a nice thing. You know, we'll maybe do a day a week of school lunch, but watching how those things happen, it just, it impacts the, again, like I was saying, the education that American children have. If you're being, if you're seeing at school how a plate is built and that these French fries are a vegetable, that's a really challenging thing when you've been exposed to that every day as a child to be like, oh, this is actually not true. This is this is completely untrue, that this is not really a vegetable, it's a starch <laughs> and shouldn't be consumed under the guise of, yes, I'm quote unquote eating, I'm fueling my body in a healthful way or a, nu- a nutritious way. Uh, so yeah, there's there's been a lot of the last two years have been interesting for things like that. Absolutely. Well, it's conversations like this that need to happen though, you know, to educate the people. I, I sent my son with a school lunch ever since he was in kindergarten. And I don't know why this is not from great parenting, but for some reason he hates soda and he doesn't really like, um, you know, like hot dogs and burgers and things, but don't get me wrong. He'll eat the hell out of some Chick-fil-A or some, sure. um, you know, Panda Express. 
So, uh, you know, we do in moderation, like you said, we don't demonize any food, but we understand like this is what we're going to eat most of the time. And this is fine. And it's not a treat as well. I'm very, very, very diligent. Like, oh, you had good grades. Let's go to Chick-fil-A because now that's yeah. reinforcing that that's a totally. higher level of food, which is totally wrong. So, yep. Um, yep. but yeah, we don't do food rewards in our house either. No, that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's a bad, <laughs> a bad message to send. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of education, um, I know initially it wasn't the nutrition dietetic space that you were heading into. So walk me yeah. through the direction you were going in and then let's kind of get to, to UF so we can um, discuss fellow gator stories <laughs> yeah uh, so I played soccer in college and the I went to a um, went to a junior college my first two years and then was looking to where I was going to finish my second two years and I finished went to school at North Idaho College in uh, Coeur d'Alene Idaho and then I finished it at Mesa State College in Grand Junction Colorado it's now, now called Colorado Mesa University um, so I was kind of subject to what degrees were there that I went there in order to continue playing. Um, I certainly had a very strong interest in living in beautiful Colorado. So I went there for the scenery as well as a place that I could continue playing division two soccer. So, um, the degree that I chose while I was there was exercise science was super excited about it. Um, absolutely loved it. And when I finished that degree, I knew that I was going to go get a master's. And I thought for sure I was going to go get a master's in exercise physiology, that that's what I was going to do, that somehow I was going to work with athletes um, and be an exercise physiologist. And two weeks after I graduated from college, I went to the American College of Sports Medicine National Conference, annual conference. And if you've ever been to ACSM, it is a huge conference. It's enormous. And there's multiple concurrent presentations happening all throughout the day. And so it's kind of a choose your own adventure. You set up your own agenda, you go listen to whatever you want. They're all open access. And everything that I chose to go listen to was a nutrition presentation. And I just had no idea that I was that interested in nutrition. And it's funny now to hear my mom talk about like, yeah, absolutely. You were always interested in food. You were always paying attention to what made your body feel better during soccer games. And, and I don't remember that. I, I mean, I do now that she, when she said it, I'm like, oh yeah, I guess that's right. But I didn't think about it that way as far as like being a performance nutrition type thing. Um, but every talk I went, like I said, went to listen to his nutrition. So I realized very quickly that I was going back to school, but it wasn't going to immediately be for exercise physiology. So, um, the, my college boyfriend was from Wyoming and just up the road from Colorado. And there at the University of Wyoming, they had a nutrition degree. And so I applied and was accepted and went back and did a second bachelor's degree in nutrition. And once you graduate with your, with the coursework in nutrition, then you do a dietetic internship. There's a couple ways to do it, but the way I did it was a, a dietetics or nutrition bachelor's and then went and completed a dietetic internship and happened to go through the University of Houston. They had kind of a, a wellness or sports performance focus that you could do um, in order to become a registered dietitian. We all do. We all have the exact same education um, as a baseline, and you can't specialize until later on. And sports nutrition isn't really heavily especially then wasn't heavily recognized as a specialty that individuals could do. So finding a program that was offering sports nutrition or wellness as a kind of an elective focus was really attractive to me. So I went to the university of Houston, completed my dietetic internship in the city of Houston. And as I was, well, while I was there, there was a gal who came and talked to us about sports nutrition. She was a sports dietitian and 
but she, it was very interesting. Like while she was talking to our internship class, she said, you know, if, if you think that you're just going to be like that blonde girl running around the football locker room at halftime, helping with performance fuel, like you're crazy. Cause that doesn't exist. And I happen to be a blonde girl. I don't think she was talking to me. I think it was just kind of her hypothetical situation, but I thought, you know what, lady, that is what I'm going to do. I am going to be a blonde girl performance dietitian fueling athletes at halftime. So as that 10-month internship wrapped up, there were a number of different opportunities that uh, that were opening. My dietetic internship director knew that I was interested in performance nutrition and sent them my way. Um, I had interviews at both the University of Florida and at Auburn and for a, a graduate assistant position to be a dietitian in the athletic department while completing my master's degree on campus. And I interviewed for the Florida position first. I had an interview scheduled for the next week at Auburn and I got a call back from Florida the next day offering me the job. So I called Auburn and said, Hey, I just need to, I'm, I'm bailing on my interview. I'm accepting this position at the university of Florida. And I had never been to the state of Florida before wrapped up my internship, sat for the RD exam to become a credentialed registered dietitian and headed out to the University of Florida to go work in the athletic department, uh, pursue my master's in exercise physiology like I planned to initially, just had a bit of a hiatus as I went down the nutrition track, but was really glad to get back into that formal exercise physiology education now that I was credentialed because as I was saying earlier, sports nutrition isn't a heavy or an acknowledged really specialty within nutrition. So you can get your RD credential without even answering one question about how nutrition demands change for exercise versus nutrition demands at a desk job, which blows my mind because we know that all of America should be doing more exercise. So any registered dietitian should be educated on what it is to fuel an active person. Um, so started my, my um, graduate assistantship there at Florida, and I was only there for a couple of months before my boss told me that she was leaving. She was going to uh, go work with Special Forces Navy SEALs, and the program was like dropped in my lap. I had been a credentialed dietitian for a handful of months, and here I was kind of at the helm of one of the most well-established, most, the oldest one of not the first, but one of the first performance nutrition, sports nutrition departments across all of NCAA athletics. And it was really like sink or swim. I wouldn't advise anybody's career to start, <laughs> to start out that way, but you know, when it does, you just kind of, you got to figure it out. So yeah, then I was, that's how I landed at the university of Florida. That's amazing. Now, with the educational route, something I've talked about quite a bit at UF, you know, well, let, me, let me say first at the University of North London and then at UF to finish my bachelor's, I did exercise physiology style, um, you know, bachelor's degree. As someone who was hoping to then become more on, on the coaching side, understand the whole, you know, performance element, I felt like it was very myopic in what we studied and very lab coat-esque and didn't really have a lot of carryover to actually being a coach when you graduated. Yeah. It kind of parallels how you hear a lot of the the med school, you know, the, the doctors of the world don't get education on exercise and nutrition and sleep. Right. And also parallels what you said about RD as well. So 
again, you have quite a, you know, a, a wide lens now. What is your perspective on education in general in the wellness space and what can we do better? Yeah, you know, that is just such a broad question. I mean, not a broad question. It's such a far reaching question or a question that who's, which the answer of has such a an enormous application. And it's not very different from me talking about that our our young people aren't educated well about nutrition. They're not educated well about exercise either. My husband is a strength and conditioning coach. And, you know, so we're just so immersed in human performance and how much people don't know about exercise. People don't know how to feed themselves well. People don't know how to exercise. They think that they have to go for a run or they feel silly in the gym because they don't know the right movements, how to hold their body and their posture or lifting weights. So they just don't do it because they feel silly. Um, or again, thinking that they have to run, like running is painful for a lot of people, or, you know, you can get sore very easily, go run a mile and you're not used to running a mile. And now you're not going to run for days because you thought you had to run and, you know, people just don't get it. So how can we do better? I mean, I don't know. It has to start. We force all kids to go to school as we should. And I think the fact that PE programs and music programs, you know, we have to go to bat for these programs to not be cut. And that just blows my mind because we have, we have literature to show that kids who have recess time, kids who have PE are more mentally stimulated and engaged. They pay better attention in school. They get better grades. Um, but yet we have these programs at, at risk, you know, and the, the curriculum, I'm very thankful for the curriculum that's offered in my kids' school because of how well of a job, how good of a job they do in the public schools here in Virginia Beach. But um, that's not the same everywhere. And oftentimes, you know, maybe you have a lower socioeconomic school and they're scraping the bottom for teachers in general, and they're just trying to make make it through the things that they have to do to be an accredited school, let alone have a PE teacher and a space for a gym and a place that's, that's kept up well and equipment. And, you know, they might be in an inner city and they don't have a, a playground outside or a big field to go play kickball, you know, do the thing. So those schools, you know, end up without even funding around physical education. And um, that's, it's just such a shame. And we could solve so many healthcare problems in America. And instead of being a sick care system, we could actually be a healthcare system if we did so much more prevention. What is that phrase? An ounce of prevention is worth a whatever. Pound of cure. <laughs> Pound of cure. Yeah, there we go. Thanks. Uh, you know, it, It's just like, you can't even, you can't argue that. And it just seems so obvious and so easy, but it never gets done. And it's, you know, I don't know, I guess there's nothing sexy about it uh, or something because it just could be so much, America could be so much healthier that, you know, the world in general could be so much healthier if we put more emphasis on what it actually meant to take care of our bodies. Absolutely. Did you ever see the documentary, The Motivation Factor? No. Oh, this is funny because so many people I asked that are in your space or strength and conditioning haven't heard of it. And I hadn't. I've been in this, doing a podcast for almost six years now and, you know, being a coach and an athlete and all this. So Doug Orchard made um, a documentary on a PE program from uh, a school in California back in the 50s and 60s. And they had a tier system, almost like belts in martial arts, where you started off as, as I think it was white shorts and then you worked your way up. You're part of a team and you, you know, basically test for each level. 
the beginning one, I think, was like 10 pull-ups. So basically, every kid in the school could, by the end of the time they graduated, every kid in the school could do 10 pull-ups and, you know, wow. a whole sequence of things all the way through to, I think it was Blue was the top one. Um, they, like just a couple of examples, they did, had to do seven times up and down the pegboard. They did, I think it was a three-mile partner carry. Um, just crazy stuff. But you look at the footage of these these uh, men in this particular program, and it looks like you know, like a fifty muscle and fitness front cover models all just working sure. out together. And they talk yeah. a lot of to them now. They're in the their sixties and seventies, and they're still doing the same stuff. And yeah. that was the norm. That was what was yep. you know ingrained in them, and it served them you know for the rest of their lives. And I feel like we've done the polar opposite of that. And he ta- he yeah. obviously talks about this. Um, and it's sad because there was one school that still had it. And since that film was made in the interview, Doug told me, James, that one that we featured in the film, they closed down their PE program as well. You know, I mean, so. it just blows my mind. It doesn't even, it, it's not even rational. <laughs> no, exactly. Absolutely. Well, the, I think the only group that does get high level coaching are the sports teams. And that was kind of the philosophy of this PE program is everyone should be trained like a sports person. Yes. And then if they want to play sports, beautiful. They're already prepared. If they don't, then they'll be an incredibly fit accountant or, you know, whatever they choose to do. Um, so working with the collegiate athletes, you know, were there any aha moments as you started getting to the NCAA, you know, level that you were advising? As far as like their nutrition needs? Yeah. Expectations versus reality. Yeah. I mean, I, I have, my approach has always been to educate anybody wherever they are. I have to meet you where you're at. I can't, you know, we can't talking to talk about kale. If you don't even eat breakfast, you know, I'm not worried about, I have to meet them, meet the athlete where they're at, um, and figure out how can I create buy-in? How can I create a relationship? How can I, what is this person's motivation factor back to the name of that documentary? You know, what is this thing? What does this athlete want or need to do? Do they want to feel better? Um, Do they want to recover better? Do they want to have better stamina or energy throughout practice? Do they need to put on a few pounds so they don't get pushed around the field and they can't own the ball, you know, whatever their sport looks like. Um, And so, you know, you just really have to, you can't help optimize somebody until you have their trust. And so the, you know, we make decisions in our life every single day and most decisions that you make impact someone else, but the decisions about what you choose to eat is really one of the only things throughout the day that only impacts you. It might impact me if you and I are on the same team and whether or not you ate breakfast impacts your energy levels and your stamina and your ability to, to put out on the field. And, you know, it might impact me in that way, but food is a very individual and personal choice. And if you can't meet somebody where they are and acknowledge that aspect, then you're never going to have any like level of kind of influence or um, yeah, influence, I suppose on them and, and what they're choosing to do. So I don't know. I would say that's the biggest thing that you realize when you start working with people is you have to figure out what matters to them. What is their thing so that you can help them help themselves? And I'm a, I'm an educator. I am not an enabler. It's not in my 
DNA to just provide things to people. I don't believe in meal plans. I don't believe in calorie counting and I don't believe in them, frankly, because they don't work for anybody. Um, and so how can I help educate you to empower you and your ability to take care of yourself and to fuel yourself and recover yourself? Well, given the, the demands of your day demands of your week, um, and your ability to bring that to life in yourself. So I think that's the biggest thing that you learn when you go from, uh, and into the practical application, like you're talking about a physician's leave and say, how do I actually do my job? I can learn all this stuff in a textbook, but how do I really bring it to life? And once you're in, in the one-on-one counseling with individuals or group team talks or whatever, you really realize what that looks like. Now, something I've discussed as well, um, normally more in the school age is that fine line between performance and wellness. And I think where this, for example, gets abused, you have a heavier child in high school football and there's a tendency to push them to gain even more weight because they'd be an amazing you know, linebacker. But what a horrible message for a young man as far as their health. Now, was that something that you came into when you get to the college level? Because I'm sure some of these giant humans must have been amazing brick walls for football. But for a nutritionist coming in and seeing, you know, their their blood work or just their 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 physical attributes, it must be daunting that, you know, the, the lifespan of that individual may not be as uh, profound as some of the other players. Yeah, you know, it's it's one of those things where you hit on it right, actually, even talking in talking about blood work, because it is certainly possible to be what we call fit and fat. Um, you can have excess adipose tissue, excess fat tissue, and not be unhealthy. It depends on how you eat and how you how what what is your kind of plate made of and what does your cardiovascular fitness look like? You know, so I think the goal there where you know as a dietitian or as a member of a team, a performance team, a, an athletic department team, your job is you're not going to go tell the, the lineman, the 300 pound lineman that he has to lose weight because that's not your job. Your job is to, you know, help him do the thing he's doing the best that he can. It's no different when somebody comes to me and they want to be on a completely hundred percent plant-based diet. You can do that really poorly. You can be a really quote unquote bad vegan because Oreos are vegan. Sure. Go ahead. But how are we going to do this the best way that we can? How can I make my 300 pound lineman as healthy as he can be? And then how can I educate him later on as he's a senior on how do we change the in, his intake? How do we change what this looks like? He doesn't want to be 300 pounds the rest of his life either. It's hard on his knees. It's hard on his back. And I need to be able to educate him in a way that we can lose weight healthfully, that we can get him down to a weight that is manageable for his body, that's realistic for him uh, long-term. And how have I been able to do enough plate coaching with him so that he knows how to build his plate, how to change his plate? Have we worked on palatability where he likes foods that are nutrient dense, but not calorically dense? Um, have we worked through any... Um, disordered eating that may have led to him being maybe a heavier child to begin with. And very few people who have a larger body size, is there not some sort of trauma that led to that people self-medicate with food. And so, you know, that 300 pound lineman 
maybe his coach wants him to be 300 pounds, but he doesn't want him to be 315. And here's a kid who's always been rewarded for being the bigger kid. Here's a kid who maybe has some different traumas, some abuse throughout life, who's always self-medicated with food. And now he's coming in 315, 320, being weighed every day. And his coach is yelling at him to lose weight, to get back to the 300, calling him fat, calling him a slob, calling him lazy. You know, unfortunately, there's a lot of verbal abuse that happens in those settings. And, um, you know, have we worked through some of that? Why does he, does he use food as, um, as his therapy? Is that his kind of drug of choice for, uh, for emotions? And, you know, have we worked through any of that? Have we worked through the nutrition therapy of what it looks like to pay it, you know, honor your hunger and honor your cues of satisfaction? Does he know when I ask him, how do you know, how do you know when you're hungry? What is his response? When I say, how do you know when you're satisfied? Does he give me a physiological cue? Does he tell me because he can feel his stomach is stretched and he's full? Or does he tell me because, uh, I don't know, because my plate is empty? Yeah, he probably gives me a non-physiological cue when he tells me how he knows if he satisfies. We got to work through that because we're all born with cues of hunger and cues of being satisfied. If you've ever fed a baby a bottle, you know it cries when it's hungry and you could never force a baby to drink two more ounces just because you wanted it to. So we're born to listen to those cues, but getting adults or people in adult aged bodies, chronologically adult, 18 year old and up or whatever, we can eat because someone else is eating. We can eat because we're sad. We can eat because we're happy. We can eat because the clock says noon. Um, but we can all get back to those actual physiological hunger cues. And so that's a long answer, but there's a lot that goes into that when you're talking about somebody in that larger body size, how did they get there to begin with? They didn't, we didn't take that bean pole kid and say, we're going to make him into alignment. You know, that's not how this happened. Um, so there's oftentimes a lot to unpack there and it's not about teaching him to count calories because it's just not, it's not about the galleries. It's about all the other things I just said. Well, thank you. Firstly, that's an amazing answer. So that wasn't too long at all, but I think it's an important conversation to have. If we're going to, as teachers, as parents, as, as coaches, ask our children to play a sport and, you know, maybe bring some, you know, funding to a school or whatever it is, there has to be a care for that athlete's longevity the same way as you would ask a police fire, police firefighter or some of those other professions that I'm, you know, involved with the same thing. And we have no, nothing. The door closes and then, you know, Cobra for a year if you're lucky and then out you go. Um, so I think that that conversation of, for example, multi-sport athletes, you know, making sure you're not creating overloose injuries. Cause I've said this many, many times on this podcast coming from England to America. The number of Uncle Ricos that I met, you know, I could have been great, but, and, you know, these yep. injuries all happened at 17, 18 years old. I'm like, what? Like, how was everyone falling apart at 18? Because they threw right. a baseball 50,000 times. Yeah, they so, specialized so early. Yeah. So I think that nutrition element, the weight element are all huge parts of the conversation especially as so many people have children for us to be aware of when they get involved in sports themselves. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's my husband and I talk about that all this time because we we see it and especially he sees it as a strength and conditioning coach. You know, he has always said like our kids are either going to do martial arts or gymnastics. They need to learn how to move. They need to learn about their proprioception, where they are in space. They need to learn how to fall. Um, but they're also not going to do the same sport fall and spring as a six-year-old. Like, no, I don't care that you want to play baseball fall and spring. We're going to play soccer or we're going to, you know, we're going to play lacrosse. We're going to do something else. It's not even a discussion. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, just staying on the UF for one more moment. We talked before I hit record. Um, one thing I've talked about specifically with the kind of mainstream Gatorade that you would find in, you know, most convenience stores is it doesn't seem to match the kind of nutrient profile, the electrolyte profile that one would consider, you know, a high level recovery drink. And there seems to have been a shift more towards almost like a, you know, lemonade soda type drink. <laughs> um, with that being said, you educated me on some, on some different variables and obviously the, the umbrella companies. So let's talk about that. You know, you have a company that initially is trying to create performance in their athletes. You know, what are some of the, the pulls either way as the years go on? Yeah. You know, at, at the fundamental level, the thing that has not changed is that a body in motion in high intensity, stop and go motion needs carbohydrates, they need electrolytes, and they need fluid. We know that all those things are true. Um, you know, given the fact that it, if it's longer, at least longer than an hour of, of what of that type of exercise I described, you know, we need those three things. And so any, any individual performing something longer than an hour should probably, and, you know, electrolytes are maybe debatable at the kind of the two hour window, but we should have some form of carbohydrates, electrolytes, and fluids in order to sustain optimal performance. And so that foundation is true. You know, you'll see some sports drinks today that have virtually no carbohydrates, but they have, you know, electrolytes and fluids. I would argue that's not really a sports drink. It doesn't meet the intent. A sports drink contains all three things. Um, but typically if you have an electrolyte Water, an electrolyte drink, an electrolyte beverage, you have some other type of exogenous carbohydrates coming in. You are eating a banana, you are eating, you know, a, some kind of chews or something. You have something coming in that is that carbohydrate. Um, so, you know, I think that fundamental piece has not changed over the years. The science is very heavy in the favor of we need carbs, we need electrolytes, and we need fluid in order to sustain, in order for sustained optimal performance of within sustained activity. Um, I think the thing that has changed is we're smarter about the fact that first of all, there's no one size fits all approach. Everybody has, you are going to have different carbohydrate needs depending on the intensity and duration of exercise. You're going to have different electrolyte needs depending on the contents of your sweat we all sweat out mostly sodium. Then we lose some potassium. Like if you tear what a sweat composition is, it's always predominantly sodium. It's a little bit of potassium, a little bit of magnesium and a little bit of calcium. Um, but it's predominantly sodium. And we actually don't even have literature to support there being a need for any other electrolyte replacement other than sodium replacement. Um, and then the amount of fluid that's needed for, if you're getting in a certain amount, let's say 15 grams of carbohydrate, and you're getting in 180 grams of milligrams of sodium, how much fluid should that come in? You know, what's the, what is your sweat rate, your sweat content, sweat, sodium content is one thing. And then your actual sweat rate itself is another. I mean, I would have athletes, you know, in the heat of Florida, whether they're in a helmet and pads or they're out for a cross country run, you know, a guy in heat and pads out in the heat, wearing pads in August in two a day practices, that giant lineman we just talked about can easily lose a gallon of sweat in a practice. And, you know, we're monitoring that and then figuring out what all does he need to put back? He didn't necessarily burn a ton of carbohydrate because of the type of athlete that he is because of his position. What does he need to put back? So you got to stratify all of those things and figure out, 
what do we need? So we've gotten smarter in that way and knowing that we need to have a large portfolio of products that are used in a performance nutrition setting. Um, and you see that now in, in like, because you brought them up in Gatorade's portfolio, they have a lot of different products. If you were to look on their website, it might not be the, all the different products you're going to find at Seven Eleven, but, um, you know, there's a lot of different things. And as a practitioner, you have to figure out what would my lineman need versus a running back? You know, what does my, what does my guy need now? Who's doing a lot of logistics or, um, you know, information warfare type stuff need compared to one of my guys who's like on the front lines doing his job really actively outside wearing kit, got a helmet on, he's got, you know, a a bulletproof vest on all of these things. He has different needs and they have different needs throughout the duration of their career. So I think the sports science of the practical application has just continued to grow and products and different companies have diversified what's offered and what's out there in order to meet those different needs. And you just have to be savvy as a practitioner or savvy as an individual to know like, yeah, when I take off my hat and I throw it on the floor, it white lines dry on my hat. I am a salty sweater. Some people can't relate to that. They can't relate to the crystals that dry on their face after they've been sweating. When I ask them, are you a salty sweater? Has that ever happened? They're like, no. And they're like grossed out at the thought of having salt dry on their skin or on their shirt. And then the person who is a salty sweater is like, oh yeah, happens to me all the time. I always have white lines. I have white line on my skin, a white line on my hat or my shirt, my sports bra. Um, And so, you know, you need to be able to know what product might better meet my needs um, and then certainly what has else has changed is the ingredients and what we know about different um, preservatives and things that are what the what the U.S. government or the FDA would call grass generally recognized as safe. There's a ton of food additives that have been there are like 300 plus food additives in our no. There's more than that. I think the level of the, but the number of them that have been actually tested and verified, the more we learn about the microbiome, that's the bigger difference of how many, um, how we know how different food additives are really impacting our physiology um, is, and, you know, so then there's these ingredients, these additives that are in foods, when you read a nutrient label, you're like, what is that thing? I don't know what that is. It's a chemical compound of some kind. It's a food coloring of some kind. And we just learn more and more about how kind of detrimental an abundance of intake of these food colorings and food additives are. And so you see that slowly being more and more reflected in different sports drinks, in a Gatorade's portfolio, in the portfolio of other companies who right from the gate, they created something to say, hey, we're going to acknowledge that all of these ingredients are kind of trashy. This list, maybe not Gatorade's ingredients specifically, but this list of ingredients is trashy and we're going to avoid them. And we're going to create a product that doesn't contain these things that are questionable at best. Um, so, you know, we've gotten smarter. Science has helped us get smarter and has shown us that, uh, you know, we can do some of, we can make some of those products in a better way. Yeah. Well, one thing I've witnessed, um, FitAid, the other drink was kind of attached to the CrossFit community for the longest time. And their, their product Focus Aid, I use a lot. It's a great, great, um, nootropic, very low calorie, uh, excuse me, caffeine content, but really, really good for focus. Um, and now you're starting to see, I think it's Monster, if I got that right, as, you know, the kind of sponsored drink that you're, you're seeing. So whether it's, you know, the kind of high fructose corn syrup, bright colored, you know, Gatorade or the monsters, you have, as you said, in these families, 
drinks that absolutely would help with with you know rehydration but there's also seemingly a kind of bait and switch with with drinks that i think are actually very detrimental especially these hyper caffeinated ones in my population that are already underslept and dehydrated that are now you know taking these drinks and then passing out in fire academies yeah absolutely you know people assume like oh if i'm tired I'm just, I just need some caffeine to get through instead of like, okay, I need some caffeine today. And then I need to go to bed at 7 PM because as you just said, they're underslept. My guys will, you know, they carry monsters and, and, uh, bangs and Celsius is the new one. You know, I see all the things. And so it's always that question of when people say, is caffeine bad? Like, no, we know caffeine is absolutely an ergogenic aid. We know that it enhances performance, uh, both cognitive performance and physical performance. But why do you, why are you using it? Oh, I'm using it because it's 2 PM and I have to be here until five, six, seven at night. And I, um, I need caffeine to get me through. It's like, well, that's a much bigger issue. Like go ahead and do that today, but let's talk about what is your plan for tomorrow and how are we going to, how are we going to get there? Are you under fuel? Have you not eaten for X number of hours? So now you have brain fog because your blood sugar is completely like a roller coaster and all over the place. And how can we address both of those things? How do we address your sleep? How do we address your energy needs? Why do you feel sluggish? Are you completely under recovered and overtrained? Uh, and you know, where is this caffeine dependency coming from? And I think you're totally right. There is this, it is almost like a bait and switch of like what, what went from maybe a, a sports drink and something necessary. I don't know if it's always necessary. You have to fit the parameters of what I identified early on and in intensity and duration, but it's become like just the sexy thing to have a, um, to have an energy drink. And for some reason, it's being looked at differently than soda or diet soda when it's the same thing, just wrapped in a different package, right? It's like, it's no different than a soda or a diet soda. They just put in some different ingredients and the, actually the regulations on something that has a nutrition facts label is different when it's a beverage. There are less regulations around the, um, the ingredients that have to be declared and the packaging and labeling for a beverage versus a food. And so, you know, that energy drink industry is really, it's pretty gnarly. Absolutely. Well, thank you for that. Again, I think the, the new, the uh, hydration, excuse me, element is really important. I had a, um, a guest on who was one of the army's nutritionists at the time. And she talked as well about chloride. We talk about sodium all the mm -hmm. time, but chloride is often missing. Is that something that you have found in your studies too? Yeah. You know, the, um, we are, when we're sweating, we are losing a sodium chloride, but sodium chloride is not always as well tolerated in the gut. And so we have to know like, what is this individual sweat rate and how much sodium, sodium, sodium has to be attached to something. Um, it is a, it's a cation that has to be attached to an anion in order to be absorbed in the gut in order to just travel through the body. So it's always attached to something. It's cheaper to attach it to chloride. Um, but consuming higher levels of sodium chloride can totally cause gut disruption. And so it can cause GI distress, distress, bloating, diarrhea, um, not in everybody, but if you have a really high sweat sodium rate and you're trying to put a lot of sodium back, um, it's not, chloride is not as well tolerated as citrate on the gut, but then, yeah, we're losing sodium and chloride to a smaller extent in in our sweat. I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah, no, it does. It was just an interesting kind of, you know, caveat that she brought. Um, all right. Well, you mentioned the tactical profession. So kind of walk me through how you found in that space. And I'd love to hear 
again, when you first got there, some of the glaring differences between a sporting athlete and these tactical athletes that you started working with? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we had been, my husband and I have been fortunate to be on staff together five times in our career. And um, we were looking to move on from where we were. We were um, at a school, a division one school in Texas, uh, Texas State University, right in between Austin and San Antonio, Texas. And we were just ready to leave the situation that we were in for a couple different reasons. And a friend that we had met in the neighborhood, uh, her husband was an army ranger and he was, he was retiring, he was getting out. And she said to me, you know, have you guys ever thought about working in a tactical setting? You know, they hire dietitians and strength coaches, and it could be a cool jump for you to guys to move from sport into the tactical setting. And I was certainly aware of the tactical setting, uh, our professional organization, the Collegiate and Professional Sports Dietitians Association, is an organization that the dietitians within college, um, team within the NCAA, dietitians within pro sport, and dietitians within the tactical setting all belong to. Because at a physiological level, the physiology of sport and uh, special forces operators in general is very similar. And so as far as like peer-to-peer colleague support I was very aware that there were tactical dietitians because I had friends who were tactical dietitians. It just not was not something I had really considered for myself. So um, I, I called my girlfriend up and I think I sent her a text and I was like, hey, do you think I would like the setting that you work in? And she said, oh my gosh, she called me right away. And she's like, I, I am leaving my position. It posts, I think this is a Saturday. She's like, my position posts on Monday. You absolutely have to apply. And so I, you know, just kind of worked out. I, I applied to the position and I ended up getting hired within as long as it takes to get a security clearance, which is forever. <laughs> um, and uh, started at my location in March of 2019. And I have never been more professionally fulfilled. It's so much fun. I absolutely love, I love where I work. I love the, the, I don't know, the, just the mentality of the individuals that I work with. And that doesn't mean to say like, oh, because they're special forces operators, they want to be the best. They do all the right things. They're militant. They listen like, no, they're just people. They're just humans. <laughs> and so, you know, I know it isn't this like utopia of I tell somebody what to do and they all do it. Like, first of all, that would be boring. But second of all, you know, that's just not, re- not the reality. So, um, you know, I think the biggest, the thing that was uh, the most different for me is the heavy metal exposure that um, my guys and, and uh, special forces operators in general have, uh, given the fact that they, you know, they go to the range and they shoot a shoot for a number of hours in a day, or they blow a door off, or they blow through a wall, and all of the, you know, if you've ever seen something explode, you know, there's a lot of debris. And, you know, my guys don't walk around wearing like a gas mask so that they're not inhaling all of this stuff. They're inhaling heavy metals constantly. And so the nutrition implication of what it is for the body to, we, we use, we casually use the word detoxify. The liver doesn't really detoxify anything. The liver does a process called biotransformation and we transform something into something that was inhaled or, you know, a, a fat soluble product into something that's water soluble that can be excreted through urine or feces, um, or sweat. 
And, you know, just realizing like when you look at the biochemistry of what happens in the body and how the body utilizes nutrients in order to get rid of these toxins that have been inhaled, um, I just didn't realize I had no idea what a cool blend of clinical performance or clinical nutrition. I mean, I look at lab work all the time. We talk a lot about the clinical side of how nutrition impacts the body, what the medical nutrition is and how we can use food and nutrients in order to optimize the biochemistry, optimize the physiology, as well as doing the performance nutrition side. So whether it's, you know, the carbohydrates and the proteins and recovery and, and like pre during and post-workout, like I certainly do those kinds of things too, but I went from working with 18 to 22 year olds to my guys now are like 26 to 46. And so I'm looking at sustaining the career of a dad, a husband, a, an, an operator who has been, you know, who, who went like enlisted when he was 18. And so, you know, now he's maybe 20 to 30 years deep in his career, 10 to 30 years deep in his career. And we're trying to make sure that our guys that are 40 feel 40, not that our guys that are 40 feel 60 because they are so degraded from all of their exposures, um, from the fact that they are underslept. Oftentimes they are underfueled because there's enough vanity there that, uh, you know, maybe they've been underfueled for a long time. Now it's impacting their testosterone and their endocrine function in general. And, you know, we look a lot at the, the physiology of, um, of how their, their bodies are currently operating and how can we, how can we optimize that for longevity? And that's been a really just cool shift from this kind of standard performance nutrition that happens in more of the sports setting. Well, you mentioned the liver and it just kind of resonated with me for a second. I know how many of the military, you know, first responder professions, how many of us, myself included, lean into alcohol as, yeah. you know, a, a relaxant, a coping mechanism, whatever you want to kind of label it as. When you talk about the liver being a primary function to remove toxins and obviously the fire service, you know, we're surrounded by them too. We're breathing them. And even though we're given the equipment, you know, it stops us initially breathing superheated gases, but the ambient air and, you know, off gassing from our gear, we're exposed, you know, incredible amount, especially people that have been on 10, 20 years by now. Um, so what impact of the ability to process external toxins does alcohol consumption have? Yeah. You know, the liver just only has so much bandwidth. And so it's knowing that if you're tapping into that bandwidth, alcohol is, is a toxin and the body knows that. And so it's going to preferentially metabolize alcohol before it even will process carbs, proteins, fats. Essentially, we're going to, we're going to detoxify. We're going to um, break down alcohol in order to excrete it, in order to get rid of it, um, use alcohol dehydrogenase to break it apart and metabolize it. So if you're taxing the liver there, and then you're also taxing the liver with heavy metal exposure and you don't have great hygiene, you know, if we, it, 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 heavy metal hygiene is, is definitely a thing. I don't know exactly what it would look like in, in the fire community where you're wearing a lot of protective gear, but when you take that protective gear off, you are using your hands to touch it. And if you take all your gear off and you just kind of put your gear away, or even if you clean your gear, you do whatever the protocol is. Um, after being in a hazardous fire environment, and then you don't go wash your hands. And now you're touching that sandwich that you made and you're putting it in your mouth, all the things that are on 
your uniform are now on your hands, are now on your sandwich, are now in your mouth. And so not only the things that you inhaled with the occupational exposure, but now you have an additional exposure. Um, maybe your bag that is in that is in the is in the truck or the bag that touched your stuff. Now your your bag also has heavy metals on it or toxins um, from you know any type of an chemicals that are used in that professional setting and you throw it in the front seat of your car. Well, now whoever sat in your front seat, your wife's in your front seat, and now she's sitting on these chemicals and now she touches her skirt. Now she touches her face. And it's like, now it's there. Did you take your shoes off before you went home? Did you leave them outside or did you track stuff all over your carpet? And now your one-year-old who's crawling is crawling through all the toxins that you just put all over the carpet. You know, so there's that hygiene piece that we hit on really hard because that situation I just attempted to explain about a firefighter is no different than my guys being at the range and the lead that they get covered in. You know, we use leaded bullets and sure we have unleaded our fuel, but we added plenty of other fuel stabilizers, but our bullets are, you know, if they're covered in lead jackets and so, uh, or there's lead in the jacket, there's, there's lead all over them. And so, um, you know, what that exposure looks like. Our guys get exposed to, to cadmium and to vanadium and all sorts of different chemicals. So the, if the liver is having to detoxify alcohol, plus having to detoxify all of the environmental or the occupational toxins and exposures, we're just, we're going through the way I always explain it is we take What's happening in the body is a, a bunch of chemical reactions. We take one Lego or we take one molecule and we add a Lego or we take a Lego away in order to convert it into another molecule. When in order to add that Lego piece or take away that Lego piece, you have to like, you have to burn through a nutrient. It's either a vitamin, a mineral, an antioxidant. Um, in order to add that Lego piece or take it away. And so we're constantly converting that lead that came off that bullet into something that can be excreted in urine, feces, or sweat. And in order to do that, we burn through a lot of vitamins, minerals, and antioxidants into converting, in, into converting it from one thing all the way down all the biochemical processes, all the all the chemical reactions it takes to get to the thing that can be excreted. And so every different phase of those reactions, as we add one Lego piece, we take another one away, we keep converting it into um, all of these different uh, forms of a, of a similar molecule, we use nutrients. And so you're using all of the B vitamins, you're using glutathione, you're using vitamin C and magnesium and a bunch of different amino acids. And you only have so many of those to go around. So if I'm burning through those to go through all the chemical processes in the liver to use for alcohol, and then I have all these other fuel stabilizers or, or debris from shooting and breaching, um, or from putting out fires, I'm going to run out of those nutrients in order to add and remove those Lego pieces. And then all these toxins that I've inhaled or that I've ingested are going to end up building up because I don't have enough of the nutrients that are necessary to add and remove the Lego pieces in order to make this into something that the body can excrete. And so again, the body, the liver just only has so much bandwidth. You only have so many nutrients coming into the system because of the foods you choose to eat. Um, and maybe the supplements you choose to take and everything, almost everything is metabolized through the liver. And we have to make sure that individuals who have those high environmental exposures 
have enough of the nutrients necessary for the liver to go through this biotransformation that's necessary for excretion. And it's so often that the diet is poor or the supplementation is inadequate in order to meet the need. And now we lead to an overburden in the liver of heavy metals and it causes oxidative stress. It causes, um, that's the easiest way to explain oxidative stress to my guys. As I tell them, like, you can think of something that oxidizes. If I take a piece of metal and I leave it outside in the rain and it's not sealed or protective, it's going to oxidize. It's going to rust, right? We can see that visually that same oxidative stress and oxidation is happening in us, but I can't see it in you. But when you're 40 and you feel 60, you can feel the effects of that oxidative stress of that breakdown. So we say that same piece of metal we just left outside. If I seal it, I coat it, I take care of it. I give it the things that it needs. It can stay out there in the rain and it's never going to rest, or it's going to take a really long time for that thing to age and degrade and break down if I take care of it. So how can I help add sealants and protectants to my guys so that as they're getting rained on with heavy metals, their body's able to withstand that and they aren't going to degrade and rust early. They're not going to be 40 and feel 60. I want my guy that feels 40 to feel 40. And how do we, and how do we achieve that? And part of it is through limiting alcohol to limit the burden. It's getting enough sleep. It's eating enough calories, eating a nutrient rich uh, diet in general, focusing on specific antioxidants and specific antioxidant foods. Um, and honestly, it's through supplementation. I don't think that you can work in one of those settings and eat enough nutrients to keep up with the physiological demand. If you ate enough nutrients, you'd have to eat enough calories. You'd have to eat more calories and typically it would tip the scale on how many calories you need versus how many calories you're burning. Again, I don't do meal plans or calorie counting, but I think that you have to utilize supplementation um, with high quality, uh, well, well-tested, um, third-party certified for the most part supplements in order to, to meet that nutrient need. I just think it's physiologically impossible. I am seeing now through all the blood work that we do that it's absolutely an occupational demand that our guys need more nutrients to keep up with um, what that process looks like. Absolutely. Well, I've seen it in myself. And as you know, Thorne is a sponsor of the show. Again, mm -hmm. another company that I pursued um, after really learning about them through Jeff Nichols. I'll give him credit for that. They are now part of the Human Performance Project as well. But, yep. you know, they started in the medical space, unbeknownst to a lot of people. They are literally the official supplement for pretty much anyone's favorite sports team, UFC, CrossFit, you know, all the major yep. league. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I can attest and I want to get in some of the other kind of stuff they have, but I take their um, elite multivitamin. I use their protein. Um, I use the Bub's uh, collagen as well, which we'll get into a bit. So for people listening, talk to Talk to me about the kind of supplements that this tactical population should probably be adding to their diet. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm a huge supporter of Thorne as well. They are a big supporter of the special forces community at large. And so, you know, we utilize them heavily uh, for, you know, our guys can get them at, at a, the cost that they offer for our, our special forces community is awesome. And, and just the quality of their products is really second to none. Uh, you know, they do so much certification to verify if you don't know this, when you read a label, if, you, if, if something has a supplement facts label, nobody verified that what's in the bottle um, is actually what matches the label. I'm sure you're aware of that, but your listeners might not be that, you know, nobody verified that what's in the bottle is actually what's on the label. Whereas like a nutrition facts that's on a food, you grab a loaf of bread, the FDA regulates that what's listed in that nutrition facts panel has to be what's actually in the product. You can't 
you can't skip ingredients. You can't not claim something that's actually in there. And you can't say something is in there that isn't actually in there, but that's not true in the supplement business. Nobody is verifying that a bottle actually contains what the label says. And so Thorne goes through third-party certification that they don't have to go through in order to verify in many of their products, not all of their products, but to verify that the contents of the product actually match what's on the label. So we utilize them heavy as well. And I, and I bring all of that up to say that, yes, I can give you some recommendations, but it's important that you don't just go to CVS and buy, you know, nature's bounty random bottle off the shelf because it's the least expensive or that you go into GNC and buy the one that the guy tells you you should buy because it has the coolest looking label. Like, great, but there's no way to verify what's actually in there. So if you're trying to take something for a therapeutic reason to have an actual physiological effect on the body, it matters what you're swallowing. Otherwise you're just swallowing dollar bills because there's no standard and regulation that these companies are held to, and they certainly take advantage of it. So absolutely a high quality multivitamin um, in our guys. I most heavily recommend Thorne's basic nutrients to a day. I love the AMPM as well. I think that's an awesome, awesome one. Um, and is a great one to choose if, if you have the finances to, to, to do so. Um, but the basic nutrients to slash day is, um, an awesome product as well. Use that one a ton. Um, Magnesium is the other one. We absolutely do not get enough magnesium. It's used in every making every aspect of brain health. We need magnesium and all the neurotransmitters um, in TBI, concussion, recovery. Um, we use a ton of magnesium. Our bodies use a ton of magnesium. Vitamin D is used in about 600 chemical reactions in the body. It is in the biochemical pathway for so many things. We can't we can't produce testosterone without without vitamin D. We can't produce glutathione, which is uh, what help our most powerful antioxidant in our body without sufficient vitamin D. Um, omega threes are the next one. Um, everybody should be taking in like at least a gram a day of omega threes. And again, how well fish oil is. Um, fish oils are not well regulated. So when you just go to the store and you buy a random fish oil. Um, there's very poor regulation around the quality of the fish oil that it contains around the EPA content, the DHA content. Um, and then for my guys, I use NAC and acetylcysteine a lot. I don't know that everybody in the community necessarily needs NAC, but from a, um, from a liver support standpoint, it's a, a awesome bang for your buck. And we use that a lot in helping them with the detoxification or biotransformation. Um, so if I had to pick, those are my top five. Um, there's certainly other things that I think the gen that in general, I think people need some kind of nitric oxide support. Um, I use Neo 40 or Betalete from human really often for that. Um, and yeah, that would probably be kind of my, like, I must have list. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, thank you. I forget the, the code exactly, but on the, the, you know, preamble of this episode, the code is on there. I think it's BTS 15, but uh, just for everyone listening. Um, so you talked about testosterone. One thing that I've witnessed in my profession, really, as I started learning about it, Kirk Parsley, another Navy SEAL was the first one that really educated yeah. me on, on sleep deprivation. But, I just met with him the other week. Actually. Oh, did you? Very <laughs> <Yeah>. cool. Very. <laughs> I literally credit him and a couple of other people to me starting this podcast because they blew me nice. away on other people's podcasts. I'm like, why do we not know this in the fire service? Yeah. Yep. But the impact of sleep deprivation on our hormones um, 
is absolutely devastating. And what I'm seeing now, probably the last three or four years, is an absolute epidemic of exogenous testosterone use. And all these clinics are popping up and offering these guys, men that I've worked alongside in the gym, all of a sudden they're twice the size of me. And I think it's the, the medicinal route. But what worries me is there's no education on sleep and nutrition to reverse that low testosterone versus now you're going to be dependent on these clinics the rest of your life. Absolutely. Yeah. Sleep, nutrition, and then stress is the third one in there. Um, yeah, it's no different than us talking about, you know, educating kids on nutrition and having physical activity and, and for long-term health. And we, that's one of the reasons that we pull a ton of lab work on, on our guys is to help them see. And we do a lot of, 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 um, monitoring with aura rings and that kind of stuff, because we want to be able to show them and like, you can see it in someone's physiology, what's happening uh, in their biomarkers, if they are underslept, overstressed and have nutrient deficiencies. And so we all together, all three of them are going to play a role in testosterone production in general, and they all three have to be optimized in order for testosterone production to be, um, to be optimal. The other piece of that is that we know there's a big connection in the pituitary and the endocrine system, um, in, in TBI. And if there is, um, you know, hypothalamic pituitary issues within, um, hypogonadism. And so we need to address that as well with the incidence of TBI that we have here. But the first thing, absolutely, unless we know that there's an unbelievable TBI history is to talk through the, how, what their sleep is, what their stress is like, what their nutrient intake is like, you know, are, are they, uh, are they having insulin issues? Are they no longer um, sensitive to insulin and they're, you know, trending towards metabolic syndrome and diabetes, like that's totally going to impact your ability to make testosterone. So, you know, we look at a lot of different parameters and we do a lot of education around that. And, you know, the wellness clinic is just out there to make a buck. And unfortunately they are oftentimes not even monitoring well. And so, you know, when you end up with an individual on testosterone, a wellness clinic is oftentimes not going to test for testosterone levels, estrogen levels, DHT levels, you know, testing often they're like, oh yeah, once a year, we'll draw some blood work on you. You can't just give exogenous testosterone and think that it happens in a vacuum because the endocrine system doesn't happen in a vacuum. (laughs) And so, you know, there are, it's just such a, a downfall to, um, the community at large and the health of our, our people as a, as a global, as a global application of, of the word people, uh, to not understand if you're a physician I work with off always says, you know, low testosterone is a canary in a coal mine. This is not the issue. If your testosterone is low, there are lots of other things going on. This is just the red flag that something is wrong. Let's figure out what that something is. Is it your intake? Is it your stress? Is it your sleep? Is it all of those things? Because you can put an individual on testosterone and that doesn't mean that they're suddenly going to feel amazing. That's not true. So often an individual that you, that you meet or chat with who's taking testosterone, 
they still don't feel very good. It's like, yeah, because that's only a symptom of there being something bigger at play here. Whatever the thing is that's causing your testosterone to be low is impacting lots of other things in your body, impacting your energy, your ability to recover. It's impacting your mood. It's impacting your ability to focus. And that might be because you're overstressed, underslept, poorly fueled, And just by getting on testosterone, we don't fix all of those things. You didn't suddenly fix the fact that you needed more sleep or needed better stress management or needed to stop eating like what I call a trash panda. Like those things didn't go away because you put an individual on testosterone and those wellness clinics are not addressing any of that. I mean, there's plenty of endocrinologists and urologists, and there's plenty of people who may be even better credentialed that are still not educating on these things. They're going to draw labs. They're going to have you come back a month later, draw labs again. And if they're still low, they're going to put you on testosterone and without there ever being any intervention, because the, you know, they got paid for the insurance company reimburses them for 15 minutes of time with you. And they don't have time to educate you on sleep, stress and alcohol and nutrition. So here, we're just going to give you a drug because then big pharma reimburses us and all is well in the world. And you got what you wanted and you're on your way out the door and you're still, you know, overweight and sick and tired and stressed. And we didn't help you really. We just gave you testosterone. Well, and that's exactly what I see. To me, it parallels the the hypertension meds, the cholesterol meds that you see 100%. pumped out, you know, and it's, you know, we in the fire service more than most see what happens. I have had many a corpse, you know, my ugly face, the last thing they saw, if they even saw that. And then we pull a sheet over their head and the wife's crying, holding this giant fucking bag of meds that supposedly was supposed to get yep. their blood pressure down and get their cholesterol where it needs to be. But they were 300 pounds. And the same, yeah. I see the same thing with a conversation with my profession. I know Kirk had that conversation with the SEALs he worked with, which is we have to stop working on men and women this way or we're going to kill them. And the fire service are getting worked literally to death. So the answer is not to get them to become addicts of testosterone and let their balls shrink down to raisins, but to actually address their work week and give them the rest and recovery they need to actually perform at the highest level when lives are at stake. Absolutely. Yep. hundred percent. You know, we, you know, I already mentioned we could address that hypertension with some Neo 40 and we can fix that cholesterol with fiber. Like I can do it all through food. And it's, uh, you know, it's so, it just blows my mind that, you know, here we are all these, all these drugs that somebody was maybe taking the, the cost that it was to lose him as a professional, you know, with his, um, Uh, institutional knowledge that he's gained as a professional, everybody loses, everybody loses exorbitant amount of money when somebody gets lost from a family, from the workforce and all these drugs and whatever they were given, the healthcare costs that are associated that go along with this. And it's like, if we could just eat better, move more, eat the right things, we would save everybody so much time and money. Absolutely. Well, you talked about concussion and, and that definitely is a, you know, a common denominator, not only with low testosterone, but obviously with mental health issues as well. Suicide ideation. Um, you know, Chad is a perfect example of that. Um, Chad Wilkinson. Um, but I know again, circling around the thorn for a second, um, they have a product, Cinequel, which I'm taking. Um, I've just started taking, but I, I was a martial artist for a long time, went to some very fight club esque gyms at one point. Mm-hmm. I did stunts a lot of my life, you know, fire services. I'd say impact of the head is very rare, but I've had things fall on my head. So, you know, 48 years in, 
there's definitely probably some room for improvement. So from a nutritional point of view, with our men and women that were exposed, whether they were combat athletes, whether they were, you know, uh, police or military, what are some of the tools we have nutritionally for that? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Cinequel and Cinequel is an awesome product and they have a Cinequel Plus that's about like double the dose that we, that you can use like post impact. Um, and so, you know, I think there's, it's knowing that the better we can have the brain is going to sit, the brain sits in fluid, right? We know that there's cerebral spinal fluid in that the brain is going to sit in. There's, there's things that cross the blood brain barrier. The, the brain is very metabolically active. It's doing a lot of that Lego building point A to point B, adding a Lego here, taking one off here. It's burning through a lot of nutrients and has a lot of its own nutrient needs. And so it's important to have a brain that might sustain a concussion that is well fueled before the concussion is even sustained. And so uh, the nutrients that I mentioned when you asked what things people should be taking, that's not any different than the nutrients that are also optimal for brain health in order to be in a better state that if you do sustain a concussion, we want there to be a high level of nutrients because the metabolism of the cells in the brain shifts as soon as there is an injury. And, um, the, that's where like a cynical plus or something is, is very beneficial immediately post-injury as soon as possible post-injury because of that metabolic shift, uh, the brain is actually better able to use ketones as fuel. Um, and there's HMB in that cynical and the cynical plus, um, to help sustain and support the metabolic needs within the brain. When we know that, um, it's, we need more anything as soon as the brain is sustaining that injury, it's kind of chowing through nutrients in order to fight the inflammation that's immediately created. So if we can keep up with that metabolic shift that happens, we can have a brain that we support it in healing better. We cannot prevent concussion. You can't have perfect nutrition and be like concussion proof. That's not what we're saying. But if we can make the environment that the brain is in better, we um, science is continuing to show us that we can most likely decrease the severity and duration of concussion symptoms by optimizing the nutrient environment that the brain is exposed to. And so, you know, being able to utilize, uh, extra nutrients, supplemental nutrients like that is helpful. Another thing people overlook is that oftentimes when you get a concussion, you just want to lay down and sleep. And you actually need a bunch of calories in order for the brain to heal. The brain's really metabolically active. And so making sure that somebody has enough calories coming in, maybe that's through smoothies. Maybe that's through more of, you know, honestly, at that time, do I want them to be eating a lot of inflammatory foods? No, but I also want them to be eating. So, you know, if it's a day or two of some comfort foods, if I have to pick one or the other, somebody not eating at all, or somebody picking some more of comfort foods, I'm going to lean toward the comfort food. And then can we try to decrease inflammation from there. But a lot of people overlook the calorie need that comes with brain injury or mild, you know, and moderate to mild to moderate TBI. Um, and then getting in some of those anti-inflammatories like curcumin or, um, astaxanthin or specialized pro-resolving mediators, SPMs, you know, what can we do to support the inflammatory environment, um, and to decrease inflammation, uh, and then obviously avoiding alcohol avoiding fried foods, avoid, you know, trying to get enough sleep. Those things are all important. Well, one more supplement before we go to human performance project, but I just want to squeeze this in because you mentioned this in one of the conference calls we had for 7X. 
I've been taking uh, Bub's collagen for a while now and truly hand on heart. I mean, I've, I've self-experimented a lot. And as soon as I started taking it, as Sean reports, like literally my nails started growing like crazy yeah. and my hair started growing. And, you know, I'm not worried too much about the aesthetics, but I've had very dry skin and that definitely is a lot less of a problem now. But most importantly for me was the gut health and obviously the, the joint health as well. I really saw a huge improvement in, in just the regularity of my gut. Um, but then, you know, I've got jacked up knees, a torn meniscus on both knees. I've got an old back injury. You know, I've been a, a combat athlete and a stuntman and all these things, a firefighter. So a lot of wear and tear on this old body of mine. So talk to me about collagen. And then uh, really what was interesting to me was when should we ingest collagen for certain elements? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, collagen is, collagen is a protein. It is a type of protein and every every protein compare is, is made up of, is composed of amino acids and those amino acids. When we ingest them, they go into the gut. We break them down into all their individual Lego pieces. And then the body determines what it needs to build those individual Legos out of no different than if I give you a big bucket of Legos, I could give you a hundred different instruction sets. And as long as you built it into something and you tore it back down, you could move on to the next instruction set. And with the same pile of Legos, you could build something that looked completely different. That's how protein works in our body. They're just Legos. And if I give you collagen protein and you were to break it down into all the Legos and sort out which different Legos you have, the different Legos that you would have from collagen protein, although they would be the similar to the Legos that you'd get from a steak, for example, the ratio of how many, you know, two by two blocks versus how many one by two blocks versus how many two by eight blocks you would have would be different in the steak versus in the Lego. You're going to have a different composition of those amino acids, even though they're the same Lego pieces they come in different ratios to each other. So collagen is interesting because it has some amino acids that come in abundance in collagen that we don't see in a steak, for example, that steak has those same amino acids, but it doesn't have them in abundance. So collagen is neat like that. Um, the, we use collagen as you were alluding to like all over our body and collagen is used in almost every cell of the body. It's used in our skin. It's used in our hair. It's used in our nails. <clears throat> it's used in um, in all of our joints and the only way to help the body put it there. It's not like when you eat a steak, your body can only rebuild that into muscle, right? It was a cow's muscle, but you can't, you can't only rebuild it into human muscle. You can rebuild it into anything. So when it comes to the timing of when you need to take collagen, the only way to help your body use it for joints, as you were alluding to, is to increase the, the blood flow to those joints around the time that the collagen is consumed. Otherwise, we just take that collagen, we break it down into all of its individual Legos, we put it into the big Lego pile, and the body uses those Legos however it sees fit. But I mentioned there's a specific matrix, a specific ratio of what Legos are in the collagen. And if we want the body to rebuild it into, let's say, joint collagen, we just gave it the perfect thing for the blueprint of what it is to rebuild the collagen in your joints. So we want collagen to be coming in about 60 minutes before activity so that we have time to break it down into its Legos, put those into the big pile, increase blood flow to the target tissue to the joints 
And, uh, and then the body will have a much better opportunity. Science shows us that the body then has a much better opportunity to rebuild that call it that those Legos into collagen, because we gave it the perfect ratios in order to do that, increase the blood flow to that target tissue. And we're going to make it much more likely that we're going to um, better stabilize those joints. So it could be in an individual, just like you, like you're saying, you're just broken, broken from overuse, or we can use it post-surgically. We use it on individuals before they're coming in for like a post-surgical rehab um, and have them consume collagen before they come in for the rehab setting and end up with better, better tendon and ligament um, strength in a, in a post-surgical state when we have uh, used it timing appropriately. You can't just put it in your coffee in the morning and work out at 4 p.m. and expect that you're going to get a benefit in your joints from taking collagen at that time. Well, obviously, it's going through the GI tract, and I've heard some people say it's even connected with the microbiome, which I think everything is if we if we zoom in enough. So what about that? I mean, it makes perfect sense to me in my body. I can feel it when I have caffeine, when I have alcohol. It's detrimental to my GI tract. So is it basically bringing those building blocks to what might be leaky gut or whatever the damage that we've done? Yeah, you know, I, I don't know if we know yet completely. I think um, I think it is going to be related to the microbiome. I think some of the claims are a little bit ahead of the science. I think we have to be careful how we interpret some of this right now. Um, but I do think that that's where we're going to see it. I think it's going to be related to the microbiome itself. It might be in the metabolism um, of of collagen within the microbiota um, and what is what it's permitting. We can't say for sure yet that it's actually directly impacting like leaky gut as though it's, you know, coming in and and decreasing intestinal permeability. I don't think, I don't think we're there. I don't know that that isn't what science will show. Um, and theoretically it certainly makes sense, but I don't know that that the literature is not there quite yet, but I think, I think it might be even more so at like the colonic, the colonocyte, the, the cellular level that something is happening within the fermentation and the breakdown um, of collagen in the gut. Beautiful. Well, I've learned so much and you put it into terms that I can understand, which is Lego. So thank (laughs) you. (laughs) I'm sure many people are thinking the same thing. So then just circling around to the final topic. So Human Performance Project, as you mentioned, 7X, seven skydives, seven marathons, seven swims, seven continents, seven days. We will be accompanying these athletes um, living on a plane for a week. So let's talk about the challenges and what are some of the the things that you're bringing to the training and then also the the, the reboot, the recovery um, through a nutritionist size. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for better defining the whole project. When MJ first asked me about it, she didn't even mention the skydives and the, um, and the swim. So then when that extra layer got added on, I was just like, Oh my gosh, these guys really are as crazy as I thought. So yeah, you know, the, the biggest thing right now is that the guys are doing mileage workups on, um, on their training and getting to the point where they can are their bodies and their, their tendons and ligaments and feet, um, muscles, et cetera, are going to be able to tolerate seven marathons in seven days. Plus those skydives, base jumps or, and swims, what all the, all of that will look like. Um, not, not in to lay it out, not to not include the fact that we're going to be changing time zones, right? Seven continents. We're going to be changing time zones. We're going to have all these circadian shifts and how, you know, we all know you fly halfway across the world and you have jet lag and, you know, so <laughs> 
you feel exhausted just flying halfway across the world, let alone running a marathon. Oh, yesterday and today and another one tomorrow. And, you know, all of the cortisol from the base jump or the skydive, no matter how comfortable you are with it, it's still a phys- like there's still uh, adrenaline that's going to happen in cortisol. So, you know, getting their bodies to the point where they can tolerate that is really the thing they're working on the most right now. As far as the mileage, slowly working up the mileage and, you know, looking at their training plans for what is, is today a longer endurance day? How do we make sure you are fueled for uh, going into that endurance event for today? How do we make sure you're fueled well during the endurance event? And then how do we make sure that you're recovered well from today in order to do whatever training looks like tomorrow? And so it's a lot of education because, you know, the, the guys that are on the project, um, there's, you know, some army special, retired army special forces, former Navy SEALs, um, and an, a, a longer term Ironman athlete kind of all on the project. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they have been done the best job their whole lives of their fuel, their recovery, uh, you know, what that looks like. So no different than a lot of the things we've talked about on the call today. We've done a lot of education. um, And as their training plans are ramping up, we're going to do a lot of one-on-one work with making sure that they are fueled and recovered as their mileage continues to increase. You know, when you're doing three miles, five miles, it's really not that big of a challenge to recover from. But as these guys' mileage is starting to build up, uh, helping them lay out what that looks like so that they still feel good on Thursday, you know, the fourth day of the week of training, uh, what is, what is their body? How's their body doing? How are they holding up? Um, how's their gut doing? Uh, you know, how well are they doing with ingesting fluids and foods on those longer training days? Um, you know, really capitalizing on that recovery and how are they doing with hydration? I mean, the, the, the temperatures are rising all over the country. It's certainly probably warmer even there than it is here, but even here we're in the mid eighties today. And, you know, a lot of our guys are, um, in living in warmer climates and making sure that they understand how to meet their hydration needs. Cause if you're dehydrated, your gut shuts down and then you're unable to take in those, those carbs, like we were talking about within sports drinks or whatever the thing is that's coming in. So that's kind of what we're doing right now. And then we're doing individualized blood work on all the guys um, partnering with Thorne and Wellness FX in order to get a lot of biomarkers drawn and and done and analyzed and uh, feedback from me on, you know, what do those biomarkers look like? How can we supplement them appropriately? And then, um, you know, how do we, how do we make twists and changes in their dietary intake in order to, to better meet their needs and correct some of those deficiencies if they have them. And then during the project itself, as you said, we'll be traveling with them. So it's going to be making sure they have what they need before the marathon, during the marathon, and then in recovery and in, in transition, how are we going to recover in those 24 hours of travel time where we also have to sleep and rehydrate and, you know, put physiologically get the legs recovered and repaired And what is that going to look like? So, um, you know, figuring out all the logistics of what that is and and being able to address different preferences, you know, we're going to have to be preloaded with the things we need. We don't have time to like go to the grocery store, place an Amazon order, you know, we have to have all of that ready and determined. We have to know during these training periods, like what, what feels best on each guy's gut and what does he want to be consuming and, you know, what are his individual needs and how are we going to address them? So that, um, we can get them, keep them feeling as good on day seven as they, 
as they can, a percentage of day one, an acceptable percentage of how they felt on day one. <laughs> well, the goal of this whole thing is ultimately to create a manual for the tactical professions, the first responders, military, people entering that profession, people staying healthy during and then reboot You know, as you transition out. What are going to be elements of that manual, again, through your eyes? What are we hoping to find a year from now that will be in that? Yeah, you know, I think at the end of the day, we know that none of this is really rocket science. It's just appropriate application. <clears throat> and so I think we want people to know that you don't need your own dietitian. You don't need a seven continents project. You don't need all these bells and whistles in order to exercise and eat relatively well and take care of your bodies. And so, you know, I, I think it's, it's just an experiment in that. Can we make sure that we make it simple enough to understand what does the day-to-day -day look like? How are all these things interrelated? Um, and even when you do beat the crap out of yourself or find yourself in a hole um, like these guys are going to be after day seven, how do we reboot that if they can come back from beating themselves down for those seven days in a row where you're kind of condensing almost like what it, you know, years worth of things of, of damage can look like for many people, they're going to be crawling back out of that hole too. And, and how do we do that? And if we can help them get back from that, it's with a, a sleeping, eating stress management plan that is applicable to anyone. And, you know, really being able to highlight that and how these things all relate together, you know, even in every question you've given me and every answer I've given you, we've talked about how multifaceted these things are, right? We're talking about relationships between exercise, nutrition, stress, sleep, and they're all interrelated. And, you know, how do we help people kind of take care of, from, of that like total human whole, whole person approach. I guess I can't say total human. It's like a tagline, right? Somebody already owns that on it or something. So, but we know, how do we, how do we do this from a, from a holistic standpoint and, and helping people see just small tweaks here and there. We don't need to do this giant overhaul. Uh, we just need to make things a little bit better consistently. No different than that athlete I talked about meeting them where they are. How do we help people understand where they are? How do we meet them where they are and give them small and incremental recommendations in order to get back to whatever optimal may look like? And it doesn't have to be, again, if I, I can't, we can't be talking about kale if you're not even eating breakfast yet. Well, Chelsea, this has been absolutely amazing conversation, such a wealth of information. If people want to reach out to you, are there any places online or any places on social media that they can? Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't do a lot of, um, my social media is not my platform for being an educator. I certainly do a lot of that in, in my my work life. And I try to keep my work life, my professional life separate. So yeah, I do have Instagram. Uh, it's my middle, my last name used to be Zenner, my maiden name. So it's CZB for my initials, uh, underscore sports RD, because RD is a registered dietitian credential. So CZB underscore sports RD uh, is my Instagram handle. I do, I am at Chelsea Burkhart on Twitter. I haven't been, haven't done much on Twitter lately. It's just, you know, it's not my bag. Um, but mostly you're just going to see like me goofing around with my kids and every now and not, you're going to see me, you're going to see my life, my kids goofing around, highlighting them. Um, but I do put in some stuff, you know, every now and then on mostly minimal ingredient approach to things. I try to highlight different products and stuff that are more minimal ingredient that we can, can utilize in our life and different, um, 
ways to kind of go about things at home or in the kitchen. Um, but you might be disappointed if you're trying to come for some of this knowledge we just discussed. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, again, obviously the, the the people that you're working with, you know, there's a reason why that's your platform right now. Um, and, and for people listening, obviously these are some of the most elite warfighters on the planet. Um, I just want to say thank you. It's been an incredible conversation. You've gone in places of, of nutrition I've never heard discussed before. So you brought so much more just to my personal education, but it's been an amazing conversation. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Yeah, thanks, James. I appreciate it. It's been a great discussion.